Amen. Good morning. Good to be with you guys this morning. We are continuing today with a study that we started last week, if you were with us, and we are calling it From Death to Life. Uh, and what we're looking at in this study is it's a study of some of, the Je- some of the teachings that Jesus does on his way, not just to the cross, but then ultimately to the empty tomb. In other words, we're not just going to Good Friday, we're going to Easter. We're going to the moment, and it culminates on Easter, in which Jesus moves from, well, death to life. And as we sang already, not just for himself, but for me and for you. Like if you are a believer in Jesus or if you become a believer in Jesus, and guys, that's always the offer, then you're not moving toward death, you're moving toward life. You may move through death to get to life, but you're not moving toward death, you're moving toward life. I mean, the Bible comes and speaks very plainly about these kinds of things. The apostle Paul comes and he talks about these physical bodies, he talks about death, and he talks about the real us. And he says things like to be absent from the body. So just stop there for a minute. He's saying that when you die, you leave this body behind. You are absent from this body. You are absent from this body. Is to be present with the Lord. So it's to be present in a different location, in a different place, in a one-on-one kind of a thing with Jesus. And then he goes on to describe it. And he says, which is not just better, it's better by far. So think about that for a minute. I mean, just let that settle in for a second. It's a remarkable thought, but the Bible goes further than that. It says, look, you're not going to remain as a disembodied spirit for forever. You will actually receive a new body. So there is a great and a final day, which we'll be talking about today and which we are to live today in light of, and we'll get to that in a second, but it is the day of the return of Jesus. So the Bible comes and it teaches us, and as Christians, we wholeheartedly believe and have reason to that this Jesus who came into the world on Christmas in fulfillment of many different prophecies and promises will come yet again into the world in fulfillment of many promises and prophecies. And when he does, among other things, we get a new body, which, you know, I'm going to be honest, I'm kind of excited about. I don't know about you guys, but like if, you are, if you're not excited about it yet, hang on. If you get to age a bit, it's coming for you, that excitement. Like you're, I went to the orthopedist this Wednesday for my knee. It's doing things it's never done before. That's not going to happen in the new body, guys. Like I'm talking to the doctor. I'm like, listen, here's the deal. Can you just like give me a shot or something? I know that's super simplistic, but fix this, you know, because I don't want it. It's irritating, All the irritations are gone. New body, new heavens, wait, new earth. The whole earth. New. No longer corruptible. And that is something to celebrate. I mean, the great and final day will be a day of great celebration for the people of God. It will be like, it will literally actually be the greatest day ever. Will it not? It will be the day that vindicates and validates the lives that you're living right now if, in fact, you're living your life for Jesus. Like before the whole of humanity, your life will be validated and vindicated. How? Like all of the sufferings that you've endured for Jesus in this life will, in that moment, make sense to everyone all around the world. All of the sacrifices that you make make sense. The hope that you are able to express in the midst of the most despairing of circumstances because you belong to Jesus, that nobody understood apart from faith in Christ is going to make perfect sense. The joy that you experience, even in the midst of the deepest sorrows in this life, will make sense. It's going to be an amazing day. 
But it's an amazing day for those who believe in Jesus, which again is always the invitation, is it not? No, I was really proud of Will last week. He not only did a, a really excellent message, technically, and you know, all of that, but he was very bold. And he said, look, that's a day of judgment for those who what? Reject Jesus and the gracious offer of forgiveness and life and hope and meaning and mission and healing and eternity that he freely offers at his own expense to anyone who will have him, which ought to change the way we live today. But we'll get to that. So the point is that if you're a Christian or if you become one, you're moving toward life, you're not moving toward death. And what we're moving toward in this study is Easter. And what is Easter? It is the day, again, in which Jesus moves from death to life. And in moving from death to life, among a thousand other things, validates everything that I just said because Jesus teaches everything I just said and he validates the whole of the scriptures in his life and ministry. And the point that I'm trying to get you to see is that if in fact he defeated death, then we ought to believe everything that he said. That's the difference between that's a fantastical vision that you've just given to me, Tom, and oh my goodness, wait a second. So he claimed to be God, and then he validated that through all of these miraculous things that he did in his life, which you would be thinking you know, would happen if in fact he was God, and then he said that he was going to suffer, and then he said that he was going to die, and he said that he was going to be in the tomb, and then on the morning of the third day, he was going to come forth from the grave, and then all that happened. Yes. What else does he have to say? These people who wrote these stories to us, as I've said in the past, have written them in their blood. We know these things because these men suffered the loss of every valuable thing in this life, including their own lives, dying torturous deaths, defending what they had seen and what they had heard. And that is an actually risen Jesus. We are not moving toward death We're moving toward life through the one who on Easter breaks the observable pattern of human life, which is we're born, we live, we suffer. There's some joys too, thank the Lord. Our knees hurt, elder things start hurting. We collect all kinds of problems. Eventually we die and we're buried. And from what we see, that's it, isn't it? That's not it. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And oh, by the way, there's a great and final day to come. And the invitation, the question that we're kind of asking as we're moving toward Easter is, okay, well, the great and final day, it's coming. Got it. Don't know exactly when it's coming. Could be today, could be tomorrow, could be 100 years from now. I have no idea. But I'm living now today. So how am I supposed to do that? You're supposed to do it by following Jesus. You follow Jesus in this day, and then if you wake up tomorrow, you follow Jesus in that day. And if that's not the day when he returns, well, then, and you wake up the next day, boom, you follow him again and again and again. You, you follow Jesus. And what we're really talking about is what does that entail? What does that look like? And what it looks like is this, and Will said this last week, following Jesus means learning how to live today and then maybe again tomorrow, this life, these days, in light of the great and final day to come. And it's a significant calling. Jesus invites us to follow him. That's the invitation. The invitation isn't come to me, I'll forgive your sin, and then go live any way you want. You know, like, I go do your thing. Like, and when you have an emergency, I'll keep my phone on, call me. You know, like, that's not it. That's so shallow. Jesus is coming and saying, come to me and know my embrace. Come to me and experience my love. Come to me and yes, I will forgive everything, past, present, and future by the power of a blood that is infinite in its measure. 
Come to me and be shaped and formed through the study of my word and by the work of my spirit in your life and in, in your heart. Come to me and join me on a mission that I've created for your life. I have a life to lead you on. Come and, and do life with me. A life of meaning, a life of purpose. Not an easy life, but a life of joy nonetheless, knowing that your life matters and that on the final day, will be rewarded, infinitely so, eternally so. Man, that's an invitation. Don't miss it. So following Jesus means learning how to live today in light of the great and final day to come. But as Will said last week, it means doing that, even if it costs you your life, which is the ultimate example, okay? Jesus is like, yeah, let me show you how serious... Even if it costs you your life, when, where, in this day, in this life, now, the life that he'll give you back in the end, the life that when you lay down, you'll be in a place better by far. He's like, yeah, even then. And that is the ultimate value. I mean, you know, the the age-old test is like if somebody comes up and they go with their gun, you know, your money or your life. I mean, you're not happy about either option. Can we agree? Like, oh man, you know. Like, will you at least leave me my driver's license? It's such a pain to have to renew some of these things. You know, just take the money. You can take the credit cards. They're all going to be canceled. I don't even care. Just, just leave me my license and voter registration and insurance card, you know. But you'll give it to them freely. Why? Because you value your life and you value the lives of the people you know and love. And I hope and pray that you value the lives of people, Period. For every one of them has an eternal soul. More than dollars and cents. But since that is the next big example, as we pick up our study exactly where we left it off last week, Jesus is like, you know what, let's throw that one in though too. Let's talk about that one too. So here's our bottom line for today. It is that following Jesus means learning how to live today in light of the great and final day to come. Got that part, Tom, but even if it costs you your money, and I'm just gonna say it out loud on the front end, it absolutely will. It absolutely does and praise the Lord. It is a joy to give it and to use it in ways now in this life, I mean, you're gonna leave it all behind, to use it in ways now in this life that on the great and final day will not just be rewarded, but will make a difference. Okay, so we pick up our study in Luke 12, beginning in verse 13, where Luke tells us this, Jesus is teaching, you ready? And someone, meaning one single solitary person in a great big crowd of people that he's teaching to, and I say that because earlier, same chapter, says he is teaching to thousands. So imagine thousands, Jesus, and one guy interrupts his message, and he interrupts his message like with a, with a statement that has nothing to do with Jesus, and unless his brother, because it's an issue with his brother, is in the crowd, it has nothing to do with anyone else in the crowd either, and if his brother is in the crowd, it's still just two people, and it's a private matter, and he says to Jesus, listen, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And he is certainly here referring to his oldest brother. And the reason for that is because when the father and a family back then died, oldest brother would step up into the father's place, get a double share of the inheritance. So yeehaw, 
And then he would command the family. He would take over the control and the governance of the family, including the dispensation of the assets. And so at least allegedly at this point, oldest brother is depriving younger brother of something that younger brother believes that he's rightly entitled to, but isn't receiving. And so Jesus has to decide what to do with this guy. Think about this with me for a minute. You've got Jesus, who is the Son of God, so he's God-made man. He's the greatest communicator that has ever lived or ever will. He's dead center in the middle of his sermon to thousands of people. And this dude is so anxious over this situation that he's just like, he just like he breaks in. Yeah, 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 I'm sure this is important. Can you help me with my problem? What is his problem? Because Jesus is going to tell him. And it isn't the fact that his brother has at least allegedly committed some great injustice by denying him whatever his part of the inheritance is. It is instead that this man is trusting in money and not God for the kinds of things that only God can give him. Things like security. Things like significance. Things like personal value and worth. If I just have enough of this, if I just store up enough of this, then I'll be safe, then I'll be secure. Then maybe somebody will think that I matter. Then, then maybe I'll have value. Maybe I can garner enough applause from other people to make me feel okay about me. And when that's what you're looking to, for money to do for you, well, then you never have enough. You just don't. Like you'll never be secure. You'll get where you thought you would, would be. And it's like, yeah, I think a little more is needed here. And then a little more. And then a little more. And Jesus sees through this man. He realizes, okay, the brother's not the issue. You, you can go take your legal matter down to the court. He says to him, verse 14, man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? Like, take that to the courthouse. That's what that's for. And I'm not going to get involved in your private legal matter. And I'm certainly not going to do this with everybody here. P.S. I'm in the middle of a message. However, I'm actually grateful that you interrupted me because you've raised an issue that is not just unique to you. It is a plague upon humanity. It is a universal concern, at least to some degree. In other words, all of us have this issue. And so Jesus is like, I'm actually sort of, I invite the interruption. Thank you for doing that because I'm going to change topics. And we're going to talk about this. And so it says that Jesus said to them, meaning to the whole crowd there, of which this guy is, okay, one part. And notice the language, it's significant, like it's, it's like serious, it's the level of vigilance that he calls us to with this language is high. He says, take care, and then it's like he goes, that's not enough. And he says, and be on your guard against, here it is, all covetousness. That's his problem, and everyone else's to some degree, including me. The word covetousness means to have more. And then after you get that, more. And after you hit that level, you're like, that's not enough. I need more. And then after that, you're like, pretty sure I still need more. And then more. And then more. And what drives it? What drives it is looking to money, for example, to give you things that, that only God can give. That's what drives the need for more. And again, Jesus uses this language of like severe vigilance. He's like, hey, hey, take care. Okay, that's not enough. So let me say this. And be on your guard against this seemingly insatiable desire for more when it comes to wealth. And why do you have to do that? 
because it's almost imperceptible when you're looking at you. It's not hard to see in other people. We're great diagnosticians when it comes to others. Can you agree? <laughs> like, well, that person, I know their problem. It's no, 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 no. Look at yourself. You're like, oh, I think I'm pretty good. I'm not going to lie. Like, I don't think I have this problem at all. It's, it's like it's invisible. It hides. It hides behind things. So we hear this statement from Jesus and we start looking around like, who's this for? I mean, Tom, I, I'm not covetous. I'm just ambitious. What's wrong with ambition? Shouldn't I be ambitious? Is an ambition a great thing? Isn't that a, well, I guess it depends on what you're ambitious for or who. Maybe it depends on what your ambition is costing you and other people and the kingdom. What's the thing behind the thing? Well, I'm not covetous. I'm just, uh, I'm just driven. Oh, welcome to the club. You know, like I, 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 I am also driven. What's driving you? Is it insecurity? Is it a need to feel valuable? Is it something that your achievements, that your accomplishments, that your wealth, that your whatever is never going to give to you? Because Jesus is inviting you to step off of the treadmill. He's like, you know, I've done all this for you, right? Like I confer all of this to you. I've said definitively all of these things about you. You know, I'm I'm not covetous. I'm just pursuing the American dream as though that's like the unassailable goal of life. It is not for the Christian. It's empty. I'm not covetous. I'm just being responsible. Saving up. I'm, you know, I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. The Bible commends these kinds of things. It, it does. It hides. And we participate in the hiding process. And it hides behind other people too. So we look at other people who have more than us, maybe like a lot more than us. And we're like, well, clearly I can't be the covetous one. I mean, look at this guy, you know, like he's got, he's got so much more than me. Maybe he's the covetous one and maybe he is, but, but this is a conversation between you and the Lord. And so Jesus comes and he says, listen, take care. Okay, listen, vigilance, vigilance, and be on your guard against all covetousness because it's virtually imperceptible, at least when you're looking at you. And beyond that, for one's life, meaning the security of one's life, the value of one's life, the worth of one's life, the significance of one's life. One's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions, but is found rather only in God. And it's conferred by him who, by the way, is the one who gives you your possessions. So like the possessions are not even yours. And to make the point, he tells a story. Says Jesus told them a parable saying that the what? I actually want to say this out loud. This is going to be maybe not even fun, but we're just going to do it anyway. You ready? I'm going to say that the, and then you just say the word. It starts with L and it ends with and, okay? You ready? The no enthusiasm at all, none, because you know where it's going, right? The land of a rich man produced plentifully. So just to be clear, what produced plentifully? You can say it again, it's okay. The, The land, that was a little better, just moderately so. The land did. The land produced plentifully, thank you. 
It is not the rich man that produced plentifully. And yet, in saying that the land of the rich man produced plentifully, he's not denying the efforts of the rich man. He's not saying that the rich man didn't save and save and work and work, and he bought a really productive piece of land. Great investment. He did that. He's not saying he didn't get up early and work late. He's not saying that he didn't, you know, like the first in technology to have irrigation back then. Like that was the rich man. He introduced it to the whole area, opened an irrigation company. He's not saying he didn't do that. He's not saying he didn't use the right fertilizer and plant the right seed and, you know, do everything needed to maximize the production of the land. But how much could the rich man have done without the land? Zero. Okay, next question. Who made the land? It was definitely not the rich man. What is your land? What are the things that you have used to produce your crop, however great or small? I mean, just start with the basics. You're alive. Can you take credit for being alive? Did you give yourself life? Okay, so no. All right, you have a body. Did you create your body? No, you breathe air. Air is helpful. Can we agree? Oxygen, that's like a kind of help, helps you be productive. Like, I mean, I'm probably most of my life, I've polluted the air, honestly. Like, you know, driving around an SUV for crying out loud. Like, how about your mind, your intellect? You may have cultivated your intellectual gifts, and I sure hope you have. You irrigated them, fertilized them, maximized them. But the mind that you have, you were born with, your gifts, your abilities, your personality. It's your land. Apart from that, what could you have produced? Nothing. So when Jesus says that the land of a rich man produced plentifully, he speaks rightly about that man and about me. And forgive me, but he speaks rightly about you, about all of us. However, just like us, because we don't really think about this, and we're not sure that we want this to be true. This man does not realize it. So here's what he thinks. He thinks, I produced it, therefore I own it, therefore I can do whatever I want with it. And so he takes counsel, but just with himself. It says here that he thought to himself, so no thought of God at all, what shall I do? Look at the pronouns. For I have nowhere to store, uh-oh, my crops. And so after consulting himself, he comes up with his plan. He says, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all of, here it is again, my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul as though I own that. Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax. Eat, drink, and be merry. Okay, here's what makes this story so profoundly penetrating. It is that we all want to be this guy. It, it is that when you look at our lives and you look at our values and you look at the way we spend our time and you look at what we do with our money and you look at the way that we've arranged all things, we're trying to be him. Like if this guy has like a podcast, you know, the plentifully producing podcast or something, which is a tongue twister for the record that I just successfully navigated, we want to listen to it. 
So like if we were not in this story and you didn't know that he's a negative example and that Jesus is going to land the plane in a very different location and all you knew was about this guy and his career and all that he's done and all of this stuff and the seminar and you can go to it and he's written a book and, and we were asked to describe him, we would say he is wise. He's successful. He's made it. He's kind of who we'd all like to be. But then the next line in the story comes. And Jesus says, but God said to him, fool. Now, why does God call him a fool? It's super important. Does he call him a fool because this guy's a shrewd businessman? Absolutely not. Does he call him a fool because the man's a hard worker? No. And in fact, the Bible commends hard work more so than we do. Six days you shall labor on the seventh, you rest. Paul comes and he says, look, if you don't work, well, then don't eat. Well, that will take our national debt down a bit. If you're capable of working physically, emotionally, mentally, whatever, like, and you're not, he's like, no, sorry. It's not that. All right, well, then maybe it's because this guy has a solid investment plan. Is he a fool for having a solid investment plan that will provide for him and his children for years and decades? I don't know, maybe for life, you know, like for generations? No, that's that's not the problem either. That's not it. And you're like, okay, I think I know where you're going. This guy's a fool and God calls him so because he doesn't give away all of his money to the church. He doesn't give away to parachurch organizations. He's not feeding the poor. It's not it either. He calls him a fool because he trusts in money as opposed to God to give him things that money can never give him. And as a result, he never has enough ever. And so he hoards it up. He keeps it to himself. And he thinks nothing of God because he thinks that he produced it all, even though It was the land. Therefore, he thinks he's owned it all. And therefore, he thinks, why do I have to talk to anybody about this? This is mine. I can do with it whatever I want. And there's no thought of eternity. There's no thought of the final day. There's no thought of going on a great adventure with God that, yeah, involves this too. And this can be for people like the most exciting part of the journey if you engage in the journey. And so God said to him, fool, this night your soul, which does not belong to you, parenthetically, is required of you. And the things you have prepared, all these things. Whose will they be? So is the one, Jesus says, who lays up for himself treasure, but only in this day, only in this life, with no thought of the next, and is not rich toward God in this day and in light of the last one. So following Jesus means learning how to live today in light of the great and final day to come even even if or when it costs you some of your money, which it will. And if you've engaged in biblical generosity, it becomes like your favorite thing to do. It's ironic. 
So I want to ask you guys some questions as I wrap it up. And they're kind of this day versus that day questions, and they involve this topic clearly. But the first question is this, what drives your desire for more and then more and then more, assuming that you have that desire for more? Because the invitation of the gospel in part is get off the treadmill. I give you a new identity. I have conferred infinite value upon you. You have nothing to prove to anyone. I've given the life of my son for you, and I am your security. Don't count on me to give you everything you want now. But I will give you everything you need. So what drives that desire in you? Secondly, who or what are you ambitious for? Is it for Jesus, or is it, is it for you? Is it for your kingdom? Is it for his kingdom? Or some mixture of the two, I might imagine, Right? Thirdly, have you made it your goal to become like the rich man in this story? You've actually looked and, you know, Apple, things like plentifully producing podcasts, like it doesn't exist. Maybe it does. I don't know. I didn't check. But if you're honest. Fourthly, who in your opinion has produced and thus owns your crop? And I think a good way to kind of try to figure that out, sort of a litmus test is how do you speak of it? I know what I will do with my crops. I will build larger barns and I will. Who do you consult with it? Is it something that you lay before the Lord and maybe some spiritual people in your life who can help you discern what his will is in regard to how to use it? Like, who do you consult when you decide what to do with it? Is it just, no, 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 I mean, I make a plan. Like it's, and then finally, are you rich toward God in this life? Because I think that's kind of the litmus test, isn't it? Like if you're wondering, am I covetous? Do I trust in this? Tom, am I not supposed to be like the, the, uh, the ant in the Bible, you know, or the rock badger like they store up in the summer so that they can make it through the winter? Absolutely, that's biblical wisdom. But they don't store up enough for 150 years. Are you rich toward God in this life? Do you tithe? The Bible comes to us with a floor, not a ceiling for biblical giving. It's 10%. That's a shocking thought for some of you. You're like, oh, good grief. Look at the time. Like, you know, like that's brand new information right there. That's terrifying. I am not equipped for that. Like I, I had not arranged my life to make that work. Well, maybe that's your action point, you know, to begin to work toward that. But the Bible is coming with 10% as, as like, that's minimum. And then it starts layering on, and then you've got to help the poor, and you need, to, you need to hold it with an open hand. Say, Lord, you're the land. The land produced it. How can we partner together in this? Do you financially support the poor? Do you support causes in this community? Do you look for opportunities to take the wealth that God entrusts to you and that belongs to him, he's given you to manage in this life and to use it in such a way as to be grateful that you did on the great and final day. Because that offer and opportunity is there. So following Jesus means learning how to live today in light of the great and final day to come, even, even when that costs you some of your money and it is a great joy when it does. Don't miss it. All right, let's pray.
Our Father and our God, we thank you for your generosity toward us. We thank you that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That you have paid an infinite price for us. As Ryan said earlier, that, that you've bought us with a price and we belong to you. And we thank you for the quote-unquote land that you've given to every one of us by which to work and to be productive. God, do a work in our hearts, a work of faith that allows us to reorient ourselves in such a way as to enter into the freedom that you're inviting us into, a freedom of forgiveness, a freedom of healing and of life, a freedom of filling and of meaning and of purpose, a freedom of mission together with you that matters and a freedom to lay down all of our efforts to impress ourselves ultimately or other people so that we might gain something that you already have freely given. Security, safety, value, significance, worth, or whatever else. Let us step off that treadmill into your arms And then let us hold with an open hand that which you've entrusted to us so that, Lord, when the last day comes, we'll be glad we did. Take it and use it however you like. So give us faith for that because we need it, truthfully. And do these things for your glory and for the name of your Son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.